I have two, two scriptures that I'd like to put before you this morning. The first is the first five verses in Paul's letter to the Romans. Romans 9, 1 through 5. Hear the word of the Lord. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers and sisters, my kinsmen by race. They're Israelites, and of them is the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Of them are the fathers. And from them comes the Christ when you factor in his human nature. Him who is, above all, God, blessed forever. Amen. And from Titus chapter 2. Verses 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared for the salvation of all men, training us to renounce irreligion, ungodliness, and worldly passions, and to live soberly, justly, and in a godly fashion in this world while we wait the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all iniquity and to purify for himself a people of his own who are zealous for good deeds. Let's pray together. O Lord God, Do what you and only you can do. And that is make your word not just true out there, as it is indeed, but true in us and for us. Let your word feed us. Let your word shape us more fully to bear the image of the Son whose words these are. And it's in his name, his glorious, majestic name that we pray. Amen. And these are the two passages in which Paul says explicitly that Jesus is God. Jesus Christ, God in flesh. That's a tough concept for folks today. Um, I nearly caused an international incident when I was in the Dome of the Rock a few years ago. That's the Muslim monument on the Temple Mount built what is supposedly the uh, Mount Moriah that, that, uh, that Moses sacrificed or almost sacrificed Isaac and from which uh, Muhammad the prophet ascended to heaven And when in the 7th century the Muslims came into Jerusalem and saw that the Christians had just left the Temple Mount as a garbage heap as in rebuke to Judaism, the Muslims said, 
we are going to build us. We're going to build us a dome over this. And it's going to, and it's going to shame the church of the sepulcher down the road and be, with its magnificence and its, and its glory. Well, we took a tour group in there a few years ago. And um, as you know, the Muslim faith does not believe in representational art. And there's just, there's beauty, there's beautiful uh, stuff in, in, the, in the dome. And along, along the, um, the circumference, there is an inscription that I have been told calls to Christians to stop worshiping three different gods and to come and worship again the one true God. Well, I don't read Arabic. So, but I was curious to know which of these inscriptions was that one. Well, and it's, there's this obvious uh, man from uh, obviously Arabic, Muslim kind of extraction who is speaking to a group of people, and he was going back and forth between Arabic and English, and I could tell that he knew what was going on. So, you know, friendly American that I am, I went over to him and said, Sir, uh, could, you, could you answer my a question for me? Sure, sure, what do you want to know? I said, well, I understand that one of the inscriptions up here calls upon worshipers of Jesus to stop worshiping an idol and to worship the one true God. Whoa! You, he exploded in anger. And he says, what are you doing bringing that name up in this holy place? Where is your guide? What you need to get out of here right now. And so I did. I got out of the way. But the... The anger that came out of him was just overwhelming. The Muslim world is animated by lots of things. And a lot, one of those is an anger that we would call Jesus Christ God himself. It's hard for us to explain what we mean these days when we, when we say that Jesus Christ is God. If if, Muslim, if Islam is not the fastest growing religion in the world, and it may be, if it's not, then Mormonism is. Mormonism teaches the exact opposite of what Islam teaches. Islam teaches that God is so far out there, he could never condescend to become man. The Mormon faith teaches that, hey, we're all potential gods. God the Father was, just, was once a man, just like the men in this room, and all of us have the chance to grow up to be, well, what like an ancient Greek religion would have been called, gods or goddesses. We're all just on this continuum. And if you're good enough, you can make it. We have, in Western society, I don't know if you check the newspapers or check the book stands, but we have some angry atheists out there who are really ticked off that we're taking the best in us and casting it off, projecting it out to God, and falling down before these mythical beings, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they're mad, saying that we are denying the best in ourselves by worshiping out something outside ourselves. Not only that, by pretending that we're going to have eternal life, we're making everything revolve around our fan- fantasy dreams of living forever. And they're really mad about it. And I grew up in a wing of the church that is, well, let's just say, kind of on the left end. Where, what, if Jesus is God, he really is just a projection of us. And they're angry at conservatives for saying, 
that we need to keep going back to Scripture, and we are not allowed to refashion him in our image. What do we have to say to a world that's so confused about our claim that Jesus Christ is God? He really has come in the flesh, but he's not just us sort of grown up. Paul. Paul was a monotheist. He believed that there was one God. But one day on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians, he was knocked off his horse. And the Lord of the universe showed up in the flesh. And Paul had to adjust. In Romans 9, verse 5, we find this dual confession that now the God of the universe has come in flesh and he has taken on a human lineage of the line of David and at the same time he is still, nonetheless, God forever, always to be blessed. And I think it might help us to just consider together the phrases that Paul uses when he talks about the privileges of Israel to understand what it is that has been given to us in God coming in the flesh. And so, I just want to run through these terms in in Romans 9. They are Israelites. In his anguish for his own people, he reflects on what their name means. You know what Israel means? It means he strives with God. And what Paul realizes is that when Jesus Christ came in the flesh... One came who could strive with God and win our forgiveness. And who also could come to us and say, cease your striving, for I have done enough for you. God's warfare against you has ceased. And your iniquity has been removed. And we have received the Lord's hand Double for all our sins. Who could shout down the voice of condemnation within our hearts? Who could strive with God and win forgiveness for us? No mere man. Only God himself come in the flesh. That was the scandal when Jesus walked on the earth and said, I heal you, your sins are forgiven, and now go in peace. His contemporaries knew that this was blasphemy unless he himself was God. Israel's whole story was one of preparing for God himself to come and fix a mess that only he himself could fix. One of the early church fathers said, and it became an axiom of the church, only what God became could be healed. Only what God became could be healed. Just like every other Jewish person, Paul knew that he sinned. That's why sacrifices had to be offered every year. The wrongs would be covered for a year until the next offering. But it was only after Paul that it saw that it took the offering up of the God-man to get rid of sin once and for all that he realized that there was an answer to what Jeremiah had taught. Jeremiah says, 
Although you wash yourself with lime and use much soap, the stain of your iniquity is before me, declares the Lord. It was only after seeing the God-man rise from the dead that Paul really understood. It could, the sacrifices offered once a year could never take away the stain that's in me. One of my favorite Bibles uh, involves Charlie. I'm sorry, Charlie, I didn't get your permission to tell the story. But when, when Charlie was six or seven, old enough to start reading, I loaned him this Bible. And um, for some reason, he had it in the bathroom. I have no idea why. Um, and our bedroom is on the other end of the house. And all of a sudden, Charlie comes running into the room. Dad, Mom, the Bible's in the toilet. <laughs> and that just created all sorts of really unfortunate pictures. Well, we run into the room, and fortunately, the only thing in the Bible, in the, sorry, the only thing in the toilet is the Bible. So again, I have no idea why the Bible is in the bathroom in the first place. But at any rate, this is Presbyterian potty humor. I'm sorry, it's the best I got. And it's as far as I can go down this road. But at any rate... <laughs> I pull the Bible out, and, and to this day, to this day, the pages of that Bible are wrinkled because they got water-soaked. Now, you know, back then I'm going like, well, maybe there's sort of a five-second rule for, you know, for, <laughs> you know, if Charlie had just thought to, you know, pull it out real quick, it wouldn't have gotten as saturated as it did, but, you know, it probably took him a minute to go get us and, and for us to come back, so it was like good and then soaked. And so, like, for all time, that Bible is going to have those wrinkles. And at first I was kind of frustrated, but the longer, the longer I've gone, the more I have prized that Bible just because it's got those, it's got that special little warping. Well, what Jeremiah is saying is that there is a warpness to our souls because of our immersion in sin. And that can't go away. That's why God himself had to come. Because God says, you know that wrinkledness that's in your soul, the stain that's in your soul? It's mine. I'm taking it away. You will live with it the rest of your life. But in my eyes, it's gone. It took the God-man come in the flesh who could give our Heavenly Father Alzheimer's when it comes to our sins. The Bible says, I will remember their sins no more. The all-knowing, all-seeing, most holy and just God says, I will remember your sins no more. This is what we need to shout from the mountaintops. This is what, this is what our friends who are Muslim, our friends who are Jewish, our friends who are just secularly good people don't get. It took God himself to come, and he did come. And the stain that's in us, we can never remove. But he can, and he did. And it took not just a friend for sinners to come alongside us and say, I understand. But it took God himself coming in the flesh with the strength and the power to do it.
They are Israelites. And so one came, the true Israelite, to strive with God to win us a complete forgiveness. Theirs is, this, theirs is the adoption. It took the, the one true son of Israel to be perfectly obedient and to offer us a place at the Father's table, but he needed to be more than a human Israelite. He needed to be God's eternal son so that his obedience would break the power of the prince of darkness, the prince of the power of the air, who imprisoned us as what Paul calls in Ephesians 2, sons of disobedience, and win for us an eternal place at the Father's table. Theirs is the glory. Only the God-man could come and move the glory from being a cloud that followed the Israelites around and hovered over them and behind them and sheltered them and protected them. Only God come in the flesh could come and bring the glory inside you, inside us, so that now, though we are but earthen vessels, because the God-man came and can live inside us by the Holy Spirit, Though we continue to be earthen vessels, the light of God himself shines out through us. So it took the God-man to bring the glory, to be not just alongside us, but to be in us. And theirs are the covenants. Theirs are the covenants. Covenants involve the death of two parties. In Genesis 15... God shows promises. God promises how far he will go to make sure that life is given to us. When he tells Abraham to take sacrificed animals, cut them in half, and put them on opposite sides of a path, and God himself in the figure of a flaming lamp comes through, and he says, in, he says implicitly, nay, what has happened to these animal these animals. May that happen to me if I fail to keep covenant with you. Under penalty of my own death, says the almighty living God, you will have life in me. And then in Genesis 17, Abraham is simply asked to do his part in this establishing a covenant relationship when he cuts off his foreskin. and says, may what happened to my foreskin happen to my whole being. If I fail to keep covenant, we got us a problem. Because there's not a human being on the face of the earth who could ever keep his end or her end of that covenant. But God has promised that he will provide a way. And that's what we get in Genesis 22. When God says, no, don't, after all, sacrifice your own son, Isaac. He is the son of promise. Let me provide a ram. Let one who represents you and one who represents me come between us. And in the death on a hill a couple of thousand years later, as Jesus becomes sin and dies the death that every sinner deserves, And as at the same time, God abandons God on the cross. Jesus works a mysterious and deep magic 
and takes the curse against sin into such a deep place that his rising means the beginning of the end of death itself. And theirs is the giving of the law. Because Jesus is last Adam and second man. Because he's a man born under the law, he can obey the law for us and clear our offenses against the law. But it's only because he's God that he can write that law on our hearts now. Adoptive parents are told by judges as they turn over legal, all the legal rights to their child that it is as though their DNA were now in that child. But every adoptive parent knows their DNA is not in that child. In this case, though we begin outside the family, because Jesus is not just our elder brother man. He is our elder brother as God. He begins to work in us work in us in such a way that our DNA is changed. And we become transformed from the inside out to bear and reflect his glory. And that's good news. The stain is removed already in God's eyes. And over time, it becomes, the reality gets worked out in our lives. And in the long run, we will be changed. And his DNA will be ours. And then theirs is the worship. Theirs are the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. You know, Israel's story is a story of one human failure after another. Noah gets drunk. Abraham lies, Moses gets mad, David murders and adulterates, Solomon loves many wives and reintroduces through them worship of many gods to Israel and leaves the people worshiping many different gods themselves and in the next generation has the kingdom divided again. You know, in some, Israel is never the son, Israel is never the bride that they were called to be. And finally, God says, through his prophet Ezekiel, get out of the way. I'm going to come and I'm going to do it myself. Ezekiel 34, 11, 15, and 16. Behold, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. I will feed my flock, and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, and I will strengthen the sick. If Jesus Christ is God, so what? Here's what. Someone strong enough to stand down your worst fears has come. You have not just a friend in heaven, but you have a champion in heaven. Death has been much on my mind in the last few months from the realization that one of my later in life friends, Bob Weber, who has taught me so much about worship and who seemed to be the youngest septuagenarian you could imagine, was told that he had pancreatic cancer and began to walk down the path that would only lead 
in his physical death. And as one of my friends, um, Alan Groves, Old Testament professor at Westminster Theological Seminary, realized two years ago that he had the same sort of cancer that I had gotten five years ago, melanoma, skin cancer. Only while mine was found early, his was found after it was just too late. And all he was going to be able to do his last two years was to die well. And as I see my friends Scott Alexander and Greg Davis wrestle with a similar beast, knowing that now the lines are very clear, that their lives count because of Jesus Christ, and that the one healing that they can count for is in him. Well, I've thought a lot about death. And I found myself just watching around me people who were having to, to die in many different kinds of ways, whether it's um, relationships that die, or hopes for what my future might be, die. As jobs get taken away, go through the list that Chuck Berry gave us last week. And I'm called to imagine, as Chuck reminded us last week, that heaven's going to be different. The reason that I can imagine heaven is going to be different is because heaven came to earth and he came as my strong champion. So the first so what that I would offer you is no matter what sort of death comes your way, God came to overcome it. During these months of reflecting on death, I found myself reading a lot in the ancient church fathers and one of them, Athanasius, wrote a marvelous tract on the Incarnation. And the first, I can't remember, it's the first or second proof that he offers for why we know it is that God became man is, that, is this. Look at Christians. They're not afraid of death anymore. Pagans fear death. They know it's the end. The most popular inscription on Greek and Roman graves went like this. I was not, I am not, I will not be, it doesn't matter. Athanasius says, no. While our pagan friends must must." Face it with resignation. We face it with joy. Look at how many of us run to our martyrdom. Look at how joyful we are as we anticipate being with the Lord. Or on the other hand, the, the Gnostics, uh, people who didn't really believe that Jesus was, was God come in the flesh... Uh, they were believing that death was just an escape out of bodily existence. The Gospel of Judas that's been in the press the last year, in that telling of the story of Judas's betrayal, Judas is the hero because Jesus is supposed to have told them, I'm tired of this. 
I just want to go away and I want to go to heaven. I just want to get out of this world. So tell, tell on me. This life stinks. Almost cussed. This life stinks. And our only hope is to get out of it. And Athanasius says, no, when we die, we die knowing that death is evil. But we die in hope because God has taken in his son that which is evil and made it good. And so the first so what is there is nothing that comes your way from death to sickness to loss of jobs to loss of dreams to whatever that he will not redeem. And then the second so what is the second so what is He can give you and me the power to live as his son lived. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible is in John 11, when when John says, when Jesus stood before Lazarus' tomb, Jesus wept. But in commenting on, and and the term he uses is a term that that shows up in classical literature for the fury of a horse going into a battle. And another term that John uses to talk about what Jesus, what happened inside Jesus, is simply this. He stirred himself. Just like you'd use a spoon to to stir... um, a pot of something on the stove, he stirred himself. He cared. And in John's gospel, John just tells the story of what he did to raise Lazarus from the dead and then to go and wash feet in John 13 to give a picture of what we were going to be called to do. And as we prepare to go to the Lord's table, I simply want to ask you to reflect on what he has done to wash your feet as he stirred himself, as he came to the earth and was not content to just let you go your way. And think about a world that is angry and confused. And needs not an army of people who put vests on themselves with hand grenades or fly planes into office buildings. But how the world needs an army of foot washers. I want to read you something that uh, my administrative assistant, Joyce Sisler, wrote about her ministry in, an, in a Muslim country. My sister and I go to a Muslim country, we'll call it Muslim country A, each spring to meet with a group of national workers who serve throughout the Middle East and North America. A couple of years ago, I really struggled with what I would share with the women there. 
I prepared two messages, but neither seemed appropriate. During my restless night before my scheduled time to speak, it seemed that clearly a word came to me. Wash their feet. I remembered the blessing that our foot washing had been when we did it at the seminary. But where would I find the basin and the towels? I shared my desire with the servant leader, and within a few hours, everything appeared in our upper room at our conference center. I modeled the the process with a dear sister who serves in a highly restrictive country. And in humbleness, I knelt before her, And while washing her feet, I quoted verses of encouragement and prayed for her as I finished. We traded places. The Spirit's presence was very evident as we clung to one another in love and tears. Other ladies came and filled the chairs and washed each other's feet. There were many many tears, but much joy. One missionary wanted to wash others' feet, but did not allow someone to wash hers. That night when she shared with her husband, he knelt down and washed her feet. Another wanted to have her feet washed for her team member who was not at the conference. And when she returned to her country of service, she washed her feet. And one of the gifts we had taken for the ladies, that we had taken over for the ladies, were bedroom slippers, not knowing that we would be washing their feet. When the ladies shared their experience with their husbands, the vision caught. And it spread. And in fact, when elders from this church in Muslim country A visited the church leaders in Muslim country number two, which just happens to be one that we have a very strong military presence in at the moment, they knelt and washed their feet. Once again, the humbling, healing service was blessed. You and I don't have all that much to offer. We have the anguished kind of prayers that Paul lifted for his countrymen. We have the greatest story that's ever been told to tell. And we have the basin and the towel. Let's go wash some feet. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you came to conquer with your love. You came to wash away stains that go so deep that no bleach could ever remove them. You came to make the twisted and the crooked straight again as only you could do. You came to make sons and daughters of those who had no interest. We ask for the grace to come under your lordship and to call you master and God as you deserve. And we ask you, we ask you to be pleased before we receive the gift of the cup and the bread that bespeak your love for us, we ask for the grace to be able to give to you 
out of the abundant resources that you have given to us. And we offer them in, in thanks for what you are, what you have done, and what you have committed yourself to do as our God in us. Place these things deep in our hearts. Father, through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.